Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. I'm going to ask if you'd please stand for the reading of the Word of God. We do this to honor um, God's Word. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. That is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. Every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone. But the things that we cannot see will last forever. Father, I pray your anointing on your word today that you'd guide our conversation, shape this moment for your purposes, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We're in a short little series, creatively called Really Important Stuff. Uh, kind of running out of ideas. <laughs> but also apropos. Um, want to recap a little bit. The first one we talked about, really important stuff, dealt with power and how the church is not really to be a wielder of that. That while power can be a trait, if you will, at times, or be seen in us or through us, the power of the Holy Spirit, that draws attention to God. It's not for ourselves. I quoted from one book that said, there's a vast difference between the outward clothing of the Spirit's power and the inward filling of the Spirit's life. In the first, despite the power, the hidden man of the heart may remain unchanged. In the latter, that monster is dealt with. And the question was, what does the world need? Gifted men, outwardly empowered, or broken men, inwardly transformed? We would argue for the inward transformation. Another definition that I did not bring in that I'll share with you now, has to do with power, again, is that power is defined as the prerogative to determine what happens and the coercive force to make others yield to your wishes, even against their own will. Coercion is the crux of why power is irreconcilable with Christianity and in how we act and function as individuals and as the church in this world. Um, now, when a leader is able to persuade others through their will without coercion, when they present themselves in such a way that people want to obey, they recognize them as a legitimate leader with the right to expect compliance with his wishes. That's authority. It's when they choose to because they recognize something. In Jesus Christ, with all the power that he had and exhibited, he was referred to, interestingly enough, as one who stood out from all the other teachers. Why? Not for his power, but because he had authority. He spoke with authority. So, we're talking about this issue in the past 
of power, and one of the things that comes to my mind that I've quoted over the years is um, uh, about the little boy who's standing up, and the mother says, sit down, and the little boy says, I will not. And the mother says, sit down now, I will not. Sir, sit down right now, I will not. And so she goes there and sits him down and says, you're sitting down now. And he says, yes, but I'm still standing on the inside. Okay. <laughs> Reality is we can control the exterior, but for the transformation, for the change that comes within, that takes a different approach. One of my favorite quotes from psychology is, is how many psychologists does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer to it is only one. But the light bulb has to really want to change. <laughs> we can only bring so much of a degree of compliance. With all of Christ's power, it was his authority that won people over, that transformed their lives and changed how they approached things. Now, having said that, understand this. The high point of the service today has already been reached. Okay, we're on the back side of it. The reason I say that is communion and acknowledgement of the sacrifice of Christ, that is the high point of any Christian service, okay? So now lower your expectations for the rest, right? <laughs> there is a song that has caught me over the years. It's very offbeat from an offbeat group. And it could align itself towards an imagery of marriage, for our purposes today, I align it with an image of the church, which often is marriage, whether it's the church as a whole being the bride of Christ or even our connection with one another. It says, we will call this place our home, the dirt in which our roots may grow. Though the storms will push and pull, we will call this place our home. We'll tell our stories on these walls every year, measure how tall, and just like a work of art, We'll tell our stories on these walls. I find that imagery powerful that we're measuring like a kid, the growth of the individual in the same way that, and then that becomes a work of art because it speaks to the growth or the, the, the establishment of what it means to be home. And then the chorus is, let the years we're here be kind, be kind. Let our hearts like doors open wide, open wide. Settle our bones like wood over time, over time. Give us bread, give us salt give us wine. The approach to that, I think, was outlined effectively in It's a Wonderful Life when they brought bread, said that this house may never know hunger, that would be so rooted in the word of God. Salt, that life may always have flavor, that we're to be the salt of the earth. Wine, that joy and prosperity may reign forever, but also as the avocation of uh, the sacrifice of Christ. The song, and another line in it I'll talk about in a moment of time, um, captures me as a church. And we've talked oftentimes in this place that, that while walking in here, it's felt like home. And that we've been drawn to the idea that this place is not just an institution, um, that before anything else, um, that it's a, it's a community. It's a home. I like history. I like it because if we don't know where we've come from, we can't really determine where we're going. It gives us foundation, its roots. And most times when I'm talking history on a Sunday morning, it's ancient history and, and, and some of the older historical elements. And it's always fun to watch your eyes gently glaze over as I talk of those things. Um, so today I want to bring something a little bit more contemporary to mind. Some more recent history that is effect, effectively uh, affects us here rather as a church or has over the years. 
This was part of another message at one time I was going to give that I'm actually blending into this one that by itself would have been a little more intense and was entitled, What I Saw on the Way to the Revolution. Because we were part of a revolution that happened coming out of the 80s and progressing into the 90s that swept across this country and, in fact, around the globe. It was started by a church in Chicago area um, but had a broad impact. And um, it was an attempt, in an honest attempt in some ways, to correct what had been um, an increasingly insular aspect of the church that drew in more and more inward that the language got so convoluted that for a person to come from the outside had to go through a series of steps, maybe had to dress a certain way, talk a certain way, act a certain way before they could even gain entry within the church. And evangelism, reaching those that were lost, had become a secondary issue. This was an attempt to correct it, and the method was, the, per, the, the heart was good behind it, and initially was positive, but I would argue it had some very, and continues to have some darker effects as it continues to unwind. The first group that did this said, hey, a bunch of people aren't coming to the church, let's do a survey, and it came from a corporate viewpoint, those that were in, in corporations and things. Um, we would do that if we had a problem in our company, so let's do that. We'll send out a survey in the community. What stops you from going to church? Oh, this, this, and this. Okay, then we will stop doing those things or we'll adapt this in such a way to overcome your resistance to it. Contemporary style, music, whatever the case may be. Ditch the choir, all the other features that would be part of this. And, and so they had massive impact. A number of people actually found a connection again as church became a little more authentic and a little bit more real. The difficulty with this thing called the seeker movement, those that were seeking God, is first of all, forgetting that in Scripture it says that God is the one who seeks those who are lost. That it's His Holy Spirit that works upon us. But also the, the problem was, while it started off with what I would call a two-hand approach, uh, another song, if you will, that, that talks, uh, I love this old one from the 70s, we all gathered here because we all believe if there's a doubter in the crowd, we ask you not to leave. Give a listen to his story. Hear the message that we bring. Feel, feel the faith swell up inside you. Lift your voice with us and sing. Accept him with your whole heart and use your own two hands. With one, reach out to Jesus. With the other, bring a friend. And that started that way with the idea that, hey, taking a church that was completely focused to God and ignoring and irrelevant to the world to say, wait a minute, let's extend a hand out here. Let's engage the society. Let's become relevant to what's taking place here while we're remaining rooted here. And that's not a bad thing. In fact, I would argue very much that that it continues to be the vision of this church that we have one hand reached out to Christ, but that we do extend a hand to our neighbors, that we do extend a hand to those that are out there. Do you know how the, the initial disciples, that they did not have an evangelism program? <laughs> they didn't. What they had was an organic element. Check out John chapter 1, I think it is. They, 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 they meet with Christ, and then they begin to ask others to be a part of it. Like three or four of the original disciples go and ask three or four of their brothers or friends or something else after meeting Jesus, like, oh, you got to meet this guy. And so to have a hand reached out to God, to be engaged with, with Christ, to know him more and more, but to have another hand out to the rest of the culture or our friends and family, that is a very appropriate fashion to have. The problem that developed with this, not in all cases by any stretch of the imagination, but too often we're seeing, and many of the larger churches in our areas were founded under this specific movement, and we were deeply influenced by it. We backed away a couple of years ago for a number of reasons. One of those was that it had a tendency to have the pastor view himself as a CEO of a corporation, that it tended to be more commercialized 
and corporate than it was community. That there were certain aspects that we found increasingly weren't quite aligning with how Scripture should be done. That increasingly what happens is as, as, as it widened out and massive quick growth happened is that the church itself changed from trying to engage the culture to increasingly becoming a reflection of the culture. And biblical values, biblical positions um, became secondary. I first came across this mindset when I was in my graduate studies in Chicago um, when I was talking with someone over an issue of, of Scripture in the same study program as I was. And they said, oh, I, I, don't, I, don't, I, I don't follow the teachings of Paul. I follow the teachings of Jesus. And I, I was like, what, what, what? back that one up again. You don't follow the teachings of Paul. So they were rejecting the argument I was making out of Paul's writings in the New Testament, which is a significant portion of the New Testament. They were saying that's secondary or I reject it. I'm only embracing the teachings of Jesus. And then lately, churches that have gone because they understand that there are certain things in Scripture that if we continue to embrace the church, the culture is not going to only view us as irrelevant, that they will viciously attack us over them. And so now the conversation has shifted to saying, you know, the Old Testament doesn't apply. We need to detach ourselves from the Old Testament. And, and Paul's writings, yeah, I really follow Jesus' writings. And Jesus doesn't address some of these other things the way the Old Testament or Paul's writings address them. Let me be really clear, and I don't say this for any point other than just to say the fact of it. We embrace the entire Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, all of it, we embrace we establish our lives based upon that. Over the years, there's several phrases we've had. Um, one of those phrases we had is that we discuss things vigorously but never violently. And so you, we have strong leadership, we have strong perspectives and views, and we have vigorous conversations. But nobody's swearing, nobody's hitting anybody, nobody's challenging their, their motives on these things. There's no violence involved. We've never had a split. We don't have that kind of separation it's vigorous, but not violent. But another phrase that has been very important, and the more we've gone on, the more important I find it to be. Early on, even when we were embracing some of these other movements in evangelism, we made the statement, the gospel is not always acceptable, but it must always be accessible. With that, we rooted ourselves in a position that said, look it, we want the gospel needs to be accessible. It needs to be in a language, in a style, in approach that people who aren't brought up in the church can understand and glean and come to faith. But we also put a marker there saying it's not always acceptable. In other words, we know that the world will reject. We know that we can only go so far and the, and the, and the world is going to find it unacceptable. And so we, we want to engage the culture we want to be relevant, but there's a limit to how far we can take that. And when it moves off of Scripture or denies Scripture or denies the faith, then it doesn't matter what degree of influence we now surrender. It doesn't matter what kind of financial gain we surrender, what kind of impact we have that we lay down. That's not even a decision. We lay that down. The Scripture and those things that it establishes is center. We said from the beginning that we would be a creative community founded upon Jesus Christ. One of the images even, and one of our things on our walls is, is this thing over here with that rock in the middle, and each of those, I won't go into the details, represents families, that Christ is at the center. So a creative community founded upon Jesus Christ, but as life has moved on, I would actually reshape this today 
in this moment of time to say that we need to be a creative community centered upon Jesus Christ. Why the shift? Because a lot of these other churches were founded that way and are no longer that way. We can no longer say we were founded upon Jesus Christ. We must renew every day to say that we will continue to be centered upon Jesus Christ. That we will be a community, that we'll be creative, but that we are going to remain centered, rooted in the entire world of God, old and new, and its authority. That's what shapes us as individuals. That's what shapes us as a people. That's what establishes this home. We've decided over the years that we will embrace, as the scripture calls it, grace and truth. Because again, this is something that is being lost. Churches increasingly embrace grace, which is a good thing, but to the point where they're affirming everything, including things that are spelled out specifically not to be embraced in scripture. And then there's other churches that have swung so far the other way on truth that there is no grace, there is no love, just the hard pounding facts of things that can crush people and have them lost in the process. And so we strive as imperfectly as we are to embrace both grace and truth. This passage that we just read, 2 Corinthians, this is a bizarre passage of scripture. It says this, our bodies are dying, our spirits being renewed. Our present troubles are small and won't last very long. That's not a problem. We get that. They're going to produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. He's talking eternity. I've got you. I'm I'm right where you're at, Paul. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For things we see now will soon be gone, but things we cannot see will last forever. This is where, Paul, you get a little bit fuzzy on me. We're, the church is being defined as fixing our gaze on things that are unseen. How do we do that? Reflecting upon these words in 2 Corinthians, there's a, an author, Matthew McCullough, who raises that same question. How will we see what is invisible more clearly than what is so painfully visible? You know, the decline of our society, the, the, the tearing apart of the politics, the effect upon family and marriage and all that's involved. How do, we, how do we see what is invisible more clearly than what's so painfully visible? And then he offered the following. He said, Paul's argument reminds me of a negative space portrait where what is there is meant to draw attention to what is not there. What's there is meant to draw attention to what's not there. What is visible helps you to see what is invisible. And he gives an illustration that I want to give you this morning of FedEx. And just as a side note, I do get a small kickback every time I use a corporate logo of any of the major companies. So understand there'll be a lot more of those in the future. It's just a little extra cash on the side doesn't hurt, you know. Um, No. But if you notice this, you see the, 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 the purple lavender Fed, F-E-D, and you see the orange E-X, and then you see all this negative space. And so you see what is there, and it actually can help you to see something that in a way is not there. What would that be if we look at that? Is there another image as we look at the negative space that pops out? What would that be? An arrow. Some of you don't see that, all right? We, we go by the E and the bottom portion of that E, that white space there, and then the remaining portion of the X, that arrow. That's purposeful. That's deliberate. It's a subliminal way of saying FedEx moves things. 
that they're going in a moving direction. It's action-oriented. It's, in, it's intended for you to see that directly or at least unintentionally, subliminally be shaped by that. I thought that was brilliant. It's like Paul is saying, you want to see what is not visible? Look at what is visible. Pay attention to where it stops short, runs out, dries up, Trace the limits of what you can see, the transient things always passing away, and there you'll start to see the shape of the invisible glory still to come. That is brilliant. Where it stops, where it dries out, where it runs short. We look at the world around us and we see the limits of it. We see the the breaking down of those things. We see things that are here today, gone tomorrow. We see the transient nature and there's something within each human being that cries out and says, there's something more than this. Ecclesiastes says that God has placed eternity in the hearts of men that unlike animals and other things, we have a sense of tomorrow and we have a sense that this world as it is now is broken. There's something wrong even in the best and the brightest of things. We see what is visible and that screams out to us about the invisible. And this is what Christ was talking about when he comes and he talks about the kingdom of God. He talks about the kingdom of God. Those of us who are Christians that have finally realized that that we've been invited to be part of this kingdom And again, if we're not very careful, that spins off into arrogance. But we in this church remain rooted in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 29. And you're not going to see on the the screen, I'm going to read it to you. And it's not a nice scripture. It's not a nice scripture at all. It says, brothers and sisters, you and I, think of what you were when God chose you. Not many of you were considered wise by human standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you belonged to important families. In other words, a lot of you were stupid. A lot of you didn't have any sense of strength at all, and and your families were garbage. In other words, you know, I came to the dance, and you were the ugliest girl there, and I picked you. And that's us. That's us. He says, I came to the dance. You were the ugliest girl there. But I chose you. I chose you. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Thank you, Jesus. You had to hear that. Chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the things of this world that are common and looked down on. God chose those things considered unimportant to do away with the things considered important. Why? Scripture says, so no one can boast to God. No one can boast to God. That's what we're called to as followers of Christ, to be a church, not caught up with the culture and the trends and the popularity and the strength and to be wooed and influenced and shaped by those things, but to see that which is not seen, to be influenced by a kingdom that is still coming into this world and eventually we're supersede this heaven and this earth, to be a broken people, eyes focused on the unseen things. But in the midst of that, in the midst of our hand reaching up and receiving the grasp of our Heavenly Father to also be a hand that reaches back to our friends and our neighbors. And if the church decades ago was unbalanced and insular, 
The mistake of today now has been that both hands now reach out to the culture and we have turned our back too often on Christ and certainly upon his word. And now the invite is not to come and know Christ really. That becomes a secondary. The invite is to become part of our club, to become part of our church and to raise up our wonderful culture and all the benefits of it. When the original thing was to say no, like a beggar who's found bread, I now offer it to another beggar. My hand is firmly here and my gaze is here, but I do reach back. I invite you not to come and join my club, not to join my church, not to be part of my party, but to be an individual broken before God, aware of their sin, and maybe we're the ugliest girl in town, but he chose us. He chose you and me. There's a, a movie clip I've used before. I, I really like it. I've used it probably three times. I won't bore you with it again today. But there's a line in this that, that I keep finding different things in this. It's a movie called The Big Kahuna. Danny DeVito and a couple of other guys. And, and Danny's talking to this one character who's a Christian in the thing, which I find fascinating. It's not hostile to Christianity, but it's hostile a little bit to the guy. And at one point, he's talking to his compatriot, this Christian. And um, he talks about a man who just left the room. He says, he's an honest man. And then he says, you too are an honest man. I love the way he does this. You too are an honest man, Bob. Saying the name, waits it in there. You too are an honest man, Bob. I believe that, that somewhere deep inside of you is something that strives to be honest. The thing you have to ask yourself is, has it touched the whole of your life? Has it touched the whole of your life? That's the thing I'd lay out to you today as a church, as a people that there is something that I believe in each person in this room strives, to be honest, strives to know God. But the question we have to ask ourselves today is, has it touched the whole of your life? Has it touched your, your view of the world? Has it touched your view of your sexuality and how that's expressed? Has it touched your view of money and how that's used? Has it touched your view of politics? And how that's to be played out, how your families restructure, how your values are to be determined. Are your eyes focused enough that it's touched the whole of your life? You ever see the tightrope guys? Okay, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, I got a number of weird things, but one of them is I love high heights. I, I'm a rock climber. I love getting on a mountain. I love that incredible vista laid out, and I'm way up there. I also am terrified of heights. I know it's a weird thing. I'm okay if I'm standing on the mountain because I figure the mountain's safe, all right? Um, and climbing up's good. I, I'm, I have a little problem climbing down because I'm focused different. I, I was climbing a, a, a bit of a place outside Edinburgh, Scotland called uh, um, Arthur's Seat. And I walk into the valley and here's this climb. Another place up there, it was like, it was just great. And I'm climbing up there, but I'm thinking on the way up, I'm thinking, okay, I'm cool, I'm good, it's a little twitchy, I'm good. But man, if I've got to go back down this way, this is going to be really twitched because it's a different scene all the 
and I watch other people going around and watch. I get up to the very top of the hill, the mountain top actually up there. And then it gently slopes all the way down and it's an easy walk. And I realize all the other people taking the easy walk up were looking at me so strangely. Why is he doing this, okay? Okay? If I'd known about it, I still would have done it that way. I love that. But somehow being up on the, on the heights of that, like on a, like these places where they have glass floors, like a thousand feet up, and it's so cool to step on the glass floor, that's for idiots, all right? I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't care how thick that glass is, man. You're... So I like heights, but I watch these, these um, tightrope guys, and they say that they have to do all these balancing the whole time. They have to multiple balances here and there and legs and everything else all the time. So how to maintain their balance? And this one guy who does this says, when new students step onto the rope or cable, they almost always begin with the same flawed game plan. They stare downward at the wire to ensure that they have the proper footing. And so they fall. So what is the solution to this dilemma? If you've ever closely watched professional tightrope walkers, um, you may recall that they never look down at their feet or the wire on either side or at their hands, or the bounce ball. Rather, they keep their head up and look forward toward the goal, the faraway platform in front of them. They keep their eyes on the goal. We keep our eyes on that which is unseen. We keep our eyes focused on Christ. We are committed as a church to being orthodox. Now, that's going to confuse some of you really quick because you're going to sit here and say, wow, we're now going to become Greek or, or Russian Orthodox. That's weird, Okay. And trust me, we're not for a number of reasons. One is I've been in a Russian Orthodox service in Russia. Four hours long, you stand the whole time. We're not doing that. (laughs) But Orthodox, in the classic language, is this. Adhering to the accepted or traditional and established faith, especially in religion. Another one is adhering to the Christian faith as expressed in the early Christian ecumenical creeds. Third, sound in opinion or doctrine, especially in religious doctrine, hence holding the Christian faith, believing that the doctrines taught in scriptures opposed to heretical and heterodox. We are committed as a church to retaining the orthodoxy of our faith. We are aware that in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 9, it says we do have power, but it says this, we have this treasure in jars of clay, but to show that this all-surpassing power is from God, not from us. That someone coming into our fellowship is not so much caught up with our community as they are caught up with Christ. We are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. Let me say a side point real quickly to the young people in our congregation here. Those of you that are teenagers, those of you that are 20-somethings, I want to throw something out to you and I don't know if you'll catch it in this one-minute shot, but I'm throwing it right in your face. You guys are so caught up today in so much of our culture with social justice and all these other issues that, again, are often transitory. You are being so shaped by the culture that it shapes everything you do. The social media overwhelms you, and I'm sorry for that. We didn't have that growing up. And I'm sorry because that technology is dismantling you guys. You're more focused than ever before. It's always been rough. As a young person, you're always wanting to look for your reads around the the peer group and everything else. But now, it's like you can never get away from it. The church, when I was growing up, got a little weird in the sense that it was so detached from the world. But I'll tell you one thing it instilled in me that I'm really glad for. And I wish in this one moment of time I could instill in you. We became very conscious that there was the worldly perspective and there was a kingdom of God perspective. And we stood for what was the kingdom of God. And there was something courageous and brave about not following the crowd. 
into pornography or not following the crowd into sleeping with my girlfriend just because I love her or not following the crowd in, in whatever the case may be a popular opinion about current social issues. There's something about standing on the things that don't change of the word of God and taking even the ridicule at times of our peer group that I value. And if I could call one thing out of you today is fall in love with Christ. Understand not the church that you're hearing through the media. A couple of churches are that stupid, but most aren't. They're not bigoted, hateful, nasty people. They're people who want to pursue the things of God. Look for that. Embrace that Christ, that Bible, that church, and take a stand in your culture. Take a stand where you're at. Have the bravery, have the courage to be unique. Okay, that was a completely different message that just got thrown on. Sorry about that, all right? I want to continue on with where we're at here. Matthew 6 says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus says that my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. It's not of this world. Matthew, Galatians chapter 5.22 says that we're to have love, joy, peace, patience with those that oppose us, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I'm not done with you young people. <laughs> I was a youth pastor for 11 years, and in many ways, I've never left that. You guys are the most powerful, potent force there is in the entire world. You guys have more energy, drive, so many features. And the enemy is so determined to co-op that or crush that. I, I just want to call you guys out one more time. Ignore what the world is saying about the church. Do your own due diligence. Look at the scriptures for yourself. Rise up. Be courageous. You'll find others joining with you. All right. There's just one or two things I want to say to you, and that's it. As a church, we strive to be orthodox. We want to walk in humility with grace and with truth. We strive to be authentic and balanced. We are rooted in the entire Word of God and the authority of Scripture. We are a creative community, not just founded, but increasingly and further centered upon Jesus Christ. We want to have one hand reached out, but we want to have a run to Christ, but another hand reached out to the society and culture that surrounds us. The song that I referenced earlier, I want to come back to, and there's just these two things. I want to come back to that song, but I want to say one other thing before that. I had a friend I encountered a couple of weeks ago, brief encounter here at one point in the atrium. And I could see that there was some degree of unease. We had a brief conversation, brief. They left, they had to email me some other stuff later and they emailed me. And in the email, there was a phrase that caught me. It was something on the lines of, of thank you for seeing me or that I felt seen. That really caught me that for one moment of time, my friend who was just having a, a, a little bit of a, an issue at the time, small as it may have been, that for that moment of time they felt seen. 
This is part of being a community, that we see each other, that, we, that there's a relationship, that people aren't left alone. I think one of the most powerful things that could be said is just that, that we're seen. Many of you know Mel. If you don't know Mel, he's down here, and by the time things are done today, you will know him, okay? <laughs> Mel is gregarious in his faith. He texted um, the staff a week ago or so, and um, said, look, my son is struggling with some certain issues. He's disappeared. I'm concerned for him that, that he's where he's at. Can you put something on the website? We say, yeah, we can't use the website. That way it won't work real well for that. But said, look, it, text us. We'll text others. Let's text to the community, Facebook, whatever else it was. Over 800 of you responded and did this, so much so that a woman who's a social worker in a hospital contacts him and says, I saw through this whole thing of your church, yes, your son's here, he's safe, and there was a connection made for that. He texted or emailed me later and says, I want you to know this. He said, I want you to know also that this came as a result that I'm here in church. I'm saying physically people know who I am and making the case for physically being present. But the idea that so many of you gather for that moment of time, that's part of what it is to be a community. Being a family, being a home, standing upon these things that we've outlined here today. This song, there's one line in here that always catches me, that almost always breaks me out. It gets a little more intense and it says, with each year, our color fades. Slowly our paint chips away, but we'll find the strength and the nerve it takes. And then the song gets a little slower to repaint and repaint and repaint every day. In a church, there are those of us, I've been hurt. In this church, I've been hurt. I've also been incredibly blessed. We find ourselves worn with the struggle of what we face or just even with one another on occasions. But the nerve it takes that we repaint and refresh ourselves, repaint and refresh ourselves, repaint and refresh ourselves and engage again and again that we stay in that community and don't run from it. When I was growing up as a kid, growing up in the church, and some of you know the phrase I had, I was never stupid enough to run away from God, but I was so fed up with this church and the pain I saw as a kid that I would say, God, I love you, it's just your people I can't stand. And then as time went on, I realized I can't say that. You cannot love Christ and not love his church. For those of you that have come into this fellowship and are drawn to the relationships, you are welcome. But you need to understand this. Being part of this church, all that's part of that doesn't begin with the people around you right now. It does not begin with the people that you see on this platform. home begins with Christ. It begins with your repentance. It begins with your brokenness and aligning with the scripture. It begins that realizing that however ugly you were or are, that God chose you. And when you embrace Christ and lay your sin at his feet and rise new, 
adopted by him, beloved by him. Only then, when it's touched the whole of you, then you will truly be home. Smaller than dust.
Lies the greatest thing we have The dirt in which our roots may grow In the right You stand with us. my vision. And especially that last line, heart of my own heart, whatever befall, still my eyes are on Christ, is what it's basically saying. 
you've accepted Christ, you too are an honest man, Bob. And somewhere, I believe, deep inside each one of us in this room is something that strives to be that follower of Christ. The thing you have to ask you has touched the whole of your life. Has it touched the whole of your life? This message today is our stake in the ground. Here we stand, and we will not be moved from it. You're welcome to join us. Father, I pray right now you would speak to hearts and minds even as we'd leave this place. They would be challenged to not only just draw closer to you, Lord, but also to reach out and draw others in even as those early disciples did. Continue to guide us as a church, Lord. We know the gospel will not always be acceptable, but we do have a responsibility to make it accessible. Guide us in this, Lord. We commit these things into your hands in Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen.